0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingeri, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is December 3rd, 2021. We hope you're enjoying the holiday season as we review developments in the upcoming Food and Drug Administration leadership change, the coronavirus pandemic, and drug pricing. First up is Acting FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock. Now that Robert Califf has been nominated, we know that Dr. Woodcock's, Woodcock's days at the helm are numbered. Sarah, you wrote a really interesting piece looking at her and maybe complicated legacy is the best way to put it.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean her. I think, um, you know, she's been at FDA for a long time, and whenever you've been, I think in at a place for a long time and held a lot of power. Um, it particularly in a um, field as, you know, complicated and, you know, complex as FDA, you're going to have people that um, disagree with you. And that is very much the case with um, Woodcock. You see, you tend to get people that are like really huge fans of her and her work. And then there are some very, very loud critics um, as well that feel like she's really um, changed the drug approval kind of standards and what's get, um, Approved um, for for the worst, but I mean I think that um, stepping back from that, um, the piece tries to look at kind of regardless of whether you think you know she she has made a positive or negative impact, she's really been able to bring a lot of change to the FDA, including a lot of change that's probably lesser known and less slightly less controversial, I would think, um, in terms of, you know, how the FDA is structured and, and I'm talking actually largely about the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research here, I should caveat, since that's kind of where she spent most of her time and had most of her kind of leadership capability. Um, but, you know, she, she's really sort of credited with kind of modernizing the center, you know, making it function, um, in really efficient ways and, and then doing so kind of maybe improving various drug safety processes and quality processes, um, for medicines and things like that. So there's, I think there's a lot more to her, her legacy and her time at FDA than some of the, you know, very well-known controversial drug approval decisions that, um, her critics initially bring up. And, you know, I think one of like one of the interesting things that comes up from a lot of people is like as sort of a a manager and a leader at FDA, you know, she was really interested in working on how the agency functions in a way that a lot of senior leaders are often not because they see that kind of like stuff as mundane or, you know, it's just not like the sexy policy mm-hmm. issues. But people really, um, I think, appreciate what she's been able to do at FDA in that regard and really creating an organization that, you know, I think her, her stamp on it will kind of live on because of her investment in those unique areas. But yeah, I mean, the piece is, um, it's, it's a deep dive. (laughs) So you really get a sense of kind of her accomplishments over the years, you know, what, why she has, you know, um, been the source of controversy you, you also get a sense, again, of, I think, why the CEDAR, in particular, the CEDAR director position, um, comes with so much power <laughs> and influence at the FDA, um, which I think is important to think about. Um, so, yeah, that's some of the highlights.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 really interesting. I mean, and, and you know, especially the, the under, like, I mean, the, the nice way to put it is, like, the under-the-radar stuff that she did. Was like was like I I remember hearing her talk once about like the, and this was years and years ago when she first I think when she first got there or something like the drug approval process like each discipline kind of or each um, review stat like office had their own kind of like physicians that they would go to to ask questions and and do the reviews and so forth like they were promised like the cardiorenal division had a set of you know, physicians or reviewers or what, I can't remember the exact name of the positions, but, and Janet said, that's ridiculous. We we should put all these people into one big group and let everybody learn, you know, use that expertise. And, you know, she said, and so she did that. And, you know, of course there were people that didn't like it and, you know, but at the end of the day, that made a lot more sense in terms of creating efficiency, (laughs) you know, in the drug approval process. I mean, she spearheaded the office of pharmaceutical quality, which took a lot of stuff out of the office of generic that had been in the office of um, generic drugs and put it in its own, you know, place and, and gave them, you know, and get, and, and, you know, kind of gave them some more, some more power and so forth. So, I mean, I think she even elevated the Office of generic drugs, um, I think into a, to a super office um, as secret in Cedar too, which is a, which is a big deal for, the generic drug industry I mean it it's 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 really these under the rate I think a lot of these under the radar things that she really doesn't get appreciated enough for doing as in you know how you see kind of the modern the way cedar operates today
2: yeah I mean I think uh, uh, a lot of us uh, tend to see her sort of kind of uh, you know review efficiencies as a function of uh, PDUFA, but I, I don't think uh, we appreciate enough or' perhaps on a day-to-day basis that's for of kind of what uh, um what comes across as Padufa and through sort of kind of uh, you know uh, deadlines and resources and all that is perhaps uh, wood cocking and uh, efficiencies <laughs> that have been uh, uh, that have been generated by sort of her just her sort of kind of sense of, sort of kind of how how should we organize this how uh, you know how's the best way to uh, proceed and collaborate and uh, um, you know she really is sort of not just her sort of kind of uh, is uh, someone who uh, you know had the uh, the power of yes, and uh, you know, critics say she was, uh, you know, too easy to, to uh, too quick to say uh, yes to drugs. But uh, this uh, this sort of empowering of people, I think, is uh, um, it's a lot of sort of what she uh, what she brought to uh, to Cedar and, uh, and FDA.
0: When you hear a lot of stories too about how hard Janet works, I mean, you know, day to day. When, I mean, even in Cedar, I mean, she would tell stories where she would have like ten meetings a day. And you're just like, do you, like do, you, do you do anything other than meet with people, like just run from one meeting to the next? I mean, that's, you know, I, um, I don't know. You wonder how she got stuff done.
1: <laughs> I have to say the one thing that um, it didn't make it into the story, but really sort of like, I mean, good for her, but kind of great on me is that a lot of people brought up how even though, you know, Wakak is, you know, generally seen as like super successful and obviously, did um as much as she could for her job that she also was had like has sort of like a very well-balanced life that she has hobbies and she has Mm -hmm. um you know, things she's really committed to outside of FDA, she would take her vacation and go hiking with her family and disconnect. And I, I don't know, as somebody who like, you know, is in a different level of, you know, her profession than what kind of, you are like, how do these really successful people find the time, you know, this kind of time and energy to do this, to be able to kind of do all of that, um, which is pretty impressive. But I, I and, and, and at the same time, like I said, I talk to people who who did say, you know, she was very available for her staff in, in ways that maybe other people wouldn't be. And certainly a number of the former commissioners I talked to really um, praised her as somebody who was a very, you know, solid um, kind of confidant and could always kind of be counted on to help provide her advice and input on an issue. And that didn't necessarily mean she wasn't a um, a yes man and she wasn't somebody that was just going to say what she thought the boss wanted to hear. She was going to say what she truly felt was, you know, the best decision for the agency and based on the science and all everything else at hand. So that was, I think, kind of interesting as well and didn't particularly surprise me because I think most people, if you've seen Janet McCuck speak or testify in Congress, you know, she is she is a pretty direct person and not somebody who's afraid to stand up for her views, but it was definitely interesting to see how much some of the former commissioners admired her for really being willing to give them her frank and, you know, unvarnished opinion.
2: Well, it's uh, um, uh, certainly uh, um, a testament to her uh, her fortitude uh, doing those things, and also just for kind of uh, withstanding all the, the public criticism about uh, um, approval decisions that she's uh, um, she's made. Uh, you know, we had another story this week that uh, um, has uh, um, uh, some advice for uh, um, FDA going forward about sort of how they might uh, um, you know avoid some of that criticism. Uh, former official uh, uh, Josh Starstein suggested that uh, you know FDA perhaps sort of talk more about how they're making decisions and you know what they might decide before they actually do it. You know, he's, he was he's very sympathetic to the FDA approaches sort or of, kind of you know. Once they've uh, vetted all the information and sort of, kind of fully assessed it and sort of put it out there, and then they sort of, kind of explain it, sort of kind of along with the decision into sort of kind of a uh, you know a big event. But he just he was. Uh, arguing that through kind of misinformation and through kind of mistrust of the, uh, the process or doesn't take a break and doesn't sort of kind of uh, stay behind closed doors and through kind of there's a, there's a constant drumbeat of sort of anti-FDA uh, um, information and the agency should uh, you know, perhaps sort of shift how it, it communicates to, uh, to counter that. And i uh, curious what you all uh, thought about uh, that potential strategy.
1: I guess the first thing that came to mind was um, some of the barriers we've talked about in the past that FDA says prevents them often from being from communicating earlier on. So um, the FDA, you know, says they operate under a lot of legal restrictions, right, about what they can say about products and approvals during the review process due to company proprietary information. So I'm, I guess I'm wondering whether they would feel like they would get kind of caught in that, you know, a a difficult cycle where maybe they really do want to communicate earlier and better, and they don't always have that flexibility to do that. I mean, some of Sharfstein's advice I could see working, um, though it would certainly be a lot of added work for the FDA, like he talked about with the, um, Adjuhelm decision, they sort of brought back the drug to another advisory committee to address the accelerated approval process. And that would have helped with communication. And perhaps, you know, he was talking a bit about, um, certain COVID situations, like with boosters and maybe there they could have, um, outline more generally the standards they were looking for, things like that. But yeah, I do just wonder how much they, in, other, in a lot of cases where maybe it would be helpful to, to communicate earlier on and give the public more information, they're going to, FDA is going to say like, well, we're sort of, our hands are legally tied.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess I wonder too, <clears throat> I mean, you could see, I mean, I could see the FDA wanting to correct the record with, and and we've talked about this on this podcast before, where, you know, companies put out statements saying we had a meeting with the FDA and they, and it went great. And the actual meeting what they were told, you're going the wrong way, you need to do X, Y, Z. And, you know, or, you know, or something along those lines. And that doesn't, that doesn't come out until, you know, the complete response letter, or you know, the advisory committee or something else you know, well down the line and i could see you know the fda want has i mean and we've heard fda officials say this that they wish that they could correct the record when those kinds of statements are made so i get that's one thing i could see advanced communication the the other the other thing that i think would be interesting and i don't i don't think the fda would do this would want to do this in every case but they they've talked about like what they've talked they talk about publicly available information so if if a company, say, like with the coronavirus vaccines, if a company puts out clinical trial data and, you know, it we it's, you know, it, it people are reading it one way, the company says this, we think this, we think this, that, or the other thing about it. What if the FDA came out and said that doesn't meet our, that isn't the standard we're looking for? You know, you save that question You save that from having being a question at the very end of the review cycle when the advisory committee is making that argument or potentially and you have to say yes or no, or it it all goes the other way and everyone gets excited about the vaccine being approved. And then you have to say, well, it didn't meet our standard and tell them no. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe you can't maybe you can't do that legally, but I would think that maybe some of those discussions would maybe could maybe help people understand earlier on in the process where where things are, maybe, I mean, it wouldn't, I don't know how, how well it would deal with the misinformation aspects of it, but.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the agency is in this dilemma where sort of it uh, um, it has good intentions and the values good science, and I'm not sure that uh, that's going to carry the the, the the day and uh, any kind of debate it finds itself in, uh, um, just for given the, uh, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, you know, the uh, forces that it finds itself against uh, um, and that they sort of perhaps do not have as uh, honorable intentions as the um, as the agency does. I mean, we, we would certainly like to see uh, more advisory committees and the uh, the number of advisory committees that the uh, um, agency has convened for drugs or kind of has sort of uh, declined over the years. Uh, you know, part of that is just, uh, you know, resources and, you know, need for speed and efficiency. And uh, um, who's to say if there were sort of more meetings like that, it would sort of kind of result in a... Uh, um, A more uh, 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 more appreciation of the agency from uh, um, from the general public. Uh, You know, they they've they've made a big effort to do that on uh, on vaccines. Uh, They have not, uh, you know, quite eliminated all. vaccine hesitancy by having those sort of kind of those uh, day-long meetings of uh, <laughs> um, of advisors uh, talking uh, um, talking that detailed language that uh, sort of we can sink our teeth into, it, but, but perhaps is not as uh, um, uh, appreciated uh, or interesting to uh, um, everybody else. But, uh, um, you know, I think, it's, I think it's more than just uh, opening up the books that sort of kind of FDA needs to do. This sort of kind of has to be... Uh, um, you know people whose uh, specialty is uh translating for kind of what they're doing to uh to the general public in a way that uh, um you know is sort of charismatic and uh, and convincing and that's a uh, um that's a hard uh, um a hard lift uh, um, even if you're checking all the boxes that uh, um josh searching thinks they that they should check whether or not they could uh, for legal reasons anyway it's a it's a dilemma for the uh, the agency
0: yeah and I think one of the comments that that dr. Sharfstein made in that interview was that you know like the FDA thinks that it can explain something once and then they're done but the misinformation people exp- you know spin their lies constantly and over and overwhelm anything that the FDA says one time within an hour so you know can you combat that i mean you know, i i don't know the FDA has social media people i don't know if they could you know, create bots that overwhelm, the <laughs> overwhelm the other bots that are misinforming people. I, yeah, it, it's, you know, I, I don't know, you know, you, you're never going to convince everybody. But yeah, I mean, I don't know how you, uh, these are for these are questions for people that are a lot more versed in social media and, uh, and these other issues that we're dealing with right now than me.
1: Right. And then there, I mean, depending on the population you're communicating to, there are certain populations that, just may not see FDA as, like, the trusted source, regardless of of how good they are. So, I mean, particularly with vaccine information, you know, there's been a lot studied in that and who is best to kind of help somebody who's not a, you know, who is skeptical. So, you know, you, you could get into a situation where FDA is doing a lot and it's not making a difference just, again, because messenger is just not perceived as you know a trusted one by the people that they're trying to reach
2: yeah that's a, a great point uh sarah that's kind of it must be uh frustrating to uh you know a bunch of uh, um uh you know sort of uh, uh doctors and uh, um uh medical experts that's kind of the, the uh uh, the folks in uh, um, the white lab coats are probably uh, perhaps not the most convincing to the people that need to need to be uh, further convinced and uh, um, through how to sort of kind of in, engage and uh, motivate those that sort of could uh, could convince those folks is, uh, um, is a different challenge than just for kind of just, uh, you know, for kind of uh, putting out sort of what uh, what you do in, uh, um, you know, more sound buddy uh, um, dribs and drabs like uh, um, like uh, Derek was, uh, um, was saying. So it's a, uh, um, it's a broader challenge than, than that.
0: It you know it's something that you know I, it, there'll be a lot of kind of postmortems written, trying to figure out what we learned from uh, you know how we can do better with that going forward. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I don't think anyone's figured out the answer to that problem yet. But while we're still on the uh, the FDA uh, leadership front, we also had some more updates on the nomination of Robert Califf to be uh, to be the next uh, permanent commissioner. Uh, this week, he was scheduled to meet with Senator Patty Murray, the chair of the uh, Health Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, which is handling the nomination. And his financial financial disclosure forms also were made available, uh, which showed a, a different state of affairs than when he was heading into his first term as commissioner a few years ago. Uh, along with his $2.7 million salary and bonus from his job at Verily, Car- Caleb also sits on several corporate boards. Many of them give him stock options that he estimated were worth $3.3 million to $12.9 million. Of course, if he's confirmed, he'll give up the board seats and he'll divest and forfeit uh, some of the stock options. And uh, there's, uh, there's plans to deal with all that stuff at this point. But, um, you know, industry ties were always going to be an issue with his confirmation. They came up pretty much as soon as his name was floated. Um, although a lot, of the, a lot of times these are settled before they really get to the confirmation hearing stage. But, I mean, do you all think that this that this disclosure reveals anything that could create any more problems for him?
2: Certainly, uh, you know, creates lots of ammunition for uh, um opponents. I don't see it really for changing the dynamic. It's not like uh, um you know he uh, people didn't know that he sort of had a lot of uh, um industry connections and uh, um, you know sort of uh, um, uh, stuff to untangle uh, uh, before he uh, uh, becomes commissioner. So uh, um, to the extent that it's sort of kind of, uh, you know, makes for good uh, sound bites as we were saying for uh, people that were going to want to uh, question his, uh, um, his 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 selection. Uh, um, it gives them that. But uh, um, you know, I think uh, um, in terms of, sort of kind of what's uh, um, what might hold him up. I think are sort of kind of just for sort of kind of uh, you know general uh, political dynamics, like we've mentioned before. If uh, um, you know, there's some uh, um, you know reason that uh, um, opponents can sort of rally around something that sort of, kind of uh, um, you know brings a uh, um, lot of animated opposition, be it somehow they're sort of tying him to uh, vaccine mandates or, uh, you know, something like that, that sort of could sort of kind uh, of threaten to sink him. I, you know, it doesn't seem like that's sort of happening right now. But, uh, you know, the longer that uh, um, this goes on, the more uh, risk of that there might uh, um, there might be. So, uh, um, you know, to the extent that it's sort of kind of is uh, just another sort of kind of a chink in the, uh, um, the armor, it's uh, um, something to watch out, watch for.
0: So yeah, it's a uh, you know, another thing that we're kind of waiting patiently for the for the hearing to be scheduled as he goes through the, the you know all these meetings up in the hills. So uh, you know these for these and all the other questions about him will probably be answered in the hopefully in the next couple in the next few weeks. But uh, you know we'll have to see how that uh, the scheduling process goes.
1: Yeah, it seems like um, there's been some reports that because of sort of the timing of him submitting all the this sort of documentation and so forth to the Senate and various other, you know, information needed for his confirmation that people are now predicting he likely wouldn't get confirmed till, until sometime in the new year. So,
0: Yeah, I think it did just get it. The the, the the holiday season in general is going to make it difficult to get all that stuff done, especially with everything else that has the Senate has to do in the next few weeks. I mean, they, they, they just barely avoided a shutdown today or last night. They still have, you know, they still have a lot of Biden's agenda to do, President Biden's agenda to do. And, um, you know, as well as uh, I think the National Defense Authorization Act has to be has to be uh, passed here pretty soon. So there's a lot of stuff on the, the Senate's plate and, you know, they, they might be happy to kind of let this slide into the, you know, for another few weeks. Also this, also this week, we saw the FDA's Antimicrobial Drugs Advisory Committee vote somewhat closely in favor of Merck's proposed oral COVID treatment, Molnupiravir. I actually said that right. The vote was 13 to 10. Uh, that benefits outweighed risks when used for mild to moderate COVID-19 in adults. I think most people believe that an EUA is coming for this drug, despite the questions that the committee raised about conflicting efficacy and safety data in the studies, but one, it, but one interesting question I found from our story was that four advisory committee members suggested the authorization be pulled if another medication with better efficacy and fewer safety issues arrives. And we know that another oral COVID treatment from Pfizer has already been submitted. We don't know if that's considered better or not yet, though. So, do you think we could be seeing something something along those lines? I mean, the vaccines really didn't the vaccines really didn't present a problem like that where. One was so much better than the other that they said we can't have this one out there anymore. I mean, the only EUA I can recall for a treatment, I mean, that was pulled was eight was hydroxychloroquine, but that was done for different reasons. So, uh, I mean, I, I this just I this seems like an awkward decision for the FDA to have to make, but you wonder if they're interested in making it.
1: I mean, I, it does seem like right now people's expectation. I mean, we need to see more data on Pfizer's antiviral, but the expectation is that it will have a better efficacy and safety profile. Um, However, um, I I know the US government has sort of increased the amount of um, both those products it said it has purchased and will have, but I think both companies are having, you know, a bit of a ramp up in manufacturing and so forth. So I think partially one reason FDA may not revoke the EUA is gonna be just based on, you know, making sure there's enough supply out there and that's one reason they i think they've used it in the past to keep you know various um emergency use authorizations on the market even when they've gotten like products approved to treat covid like say um remdesivirs for lucky um and um i mean we we haven't really seen like you said fda's like rush to really revoke things, even when it's much more clear, there's very little, um, benefit for them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, convalescent plasma still has a, it's a much more narrow EUA, but it's it's still, um, has an authorization, you know, I I don't think like, so if you pulled this, uh, if you had to pull the Merck one because, you know, you got a better antiviral, does that mean you have to pull the, um, some of the monoclonal antibodies that, you know, are more difficult to administer and haven't, and may not be also seen as, you know, having, you know, less, potentially not as great an efficacy profile. I just, I don't, I don't think FDA is going to go there. I mean, I do think commercially, you know, Merck is probably going to face an uphill battle if, um, you know, everything people are expecting about Pfizer's product proves out. I think the, the, um, People are going to be more likely to clamor for that product, and you know that's just going to be the, the name of the game. But I don't, I don't think it's necessarily, unless of course there's new safety um, issues or something that comes up. Like there's this sort of very theoretical concern that because of the mechanism of action of Merck's product, you know, it could, it maybe could in- increase the development of um, variants of COVID that we don't want. Which, if anything like that ended up being proven out. I think that would be a major problem for the company. But that, again, right now, that's pretty theoretical. And then on the other hand, I've seen people claim that what we really need is for Pfizer and Merck to join together and study their two products in combination or somebody to study it. And maybe that's really what people are going to need. So, you know, FDA might want to keep it around because they're, they're seen as other ways to use this drug.
2: Yeah, that's certainly a, a, a tantalizing uh, idea. Um, uh, you know, Sarah, you saw with uh, um, HIV uh, treatments, it was really sort of the, the combinations. Uh, in addition to sort of kind of the development of protease inhibitors, that sort of, kind of let uh, um, you know sort of let people get a handle on it as a uh, as a treatment. And the, you know, the Pfizer product is a uh, is a protease inhibitor, so uh, um, uh, you know that uh, um, that step seems uh, incredibly promising as a, as, a, as, an, as an idea. I think you're right about the. Um, EUA status, uh, you know, it feels like the biggest uh, um, issue right now with the um, the oral treatments is the uh, um, the uh, the supply uh, um, availability and uh, um, you know the more. Uh, Companies that they have manufacturing stuff, the uh, um, the better that is. I think there's a good uh, parallel with vaccines, uh, both in terms of sort of how uh, hesitant the initial advisory committee uh, um, was. We saw this was re- with the uh, review of uh, um, Pfizer's vaccine uh, last year, that there were a lot of tough questions by the advisory committee about, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, where's all this data that we usually see, and why do we? Uh, um, why do we want to go forward with this? And uh, um, that uh, um, you know that's uh, something that's we're going to play out with the uh, um, the Merck Advisory Committee this week uh, too. And now that you know there are going to, three pretty widely available uh, vaccines, FDA has we sort of kind of uh, um, uh, indicated that uh, you know perhaps there would not be a uh, room for another uh, um, EUA of a uh, um, of a vaccine. Uh, you know, given that there are uh, um, so many. Uh, um, readily available and uh, um, uh, safe and effective uh, um, uh, vaccine. So we could sort of see ourselves, uh, you know, this time uh, next year in a situation in which, uh, um, you know, COVID pills don't uh, get the same uh, um, level of regulatory flexibility that the uh, the first two are uh, um, experiencing right now.
0: Yeah, I think the, the, the more I think about it, the more I think what Sarah said was, was is probably what's going to happen is that, the you know, the market will probably make this decision, you know, for for the FDA, you know, if one is clearly better, then obviously physicians and hospitals are going to gravitate, and you know, insurance plans, payers are going to gravitate to the one that they think is better. So, you know, the, you know, and to to an extent, I think we've even seen that with with some of the vac- with the vaccines. I mean, the, the 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 Janssen vaccine is not necessarily, you know. The the uh, the efficacy was not a whole lot lower than the Pfizer and Moderna ones, but it got a lot less use in the U.S. And I think it's, I wonder if part of that is because the the efficacy of the the Pfizer and the Moderna ones were were so high.
1: Right, and and then all the attention that um got paid earlier on to the um the safety um, yeah. mm-hmm. issues with Janssen and the pause there. Um, um, didn't seem to help it. And certainly, they've seem they never seemed to be able to sort of overcome that in the way that, you know, f- Pfizer and Moderna have with the um, myocarditis risk.
0: Mm-hmm. Finally, we're going to take a look at uh, Supreme Court developments. No, we're not going to get into the case attempting to overturn Roe versus Wade, which garnered all the media attention. We're going to look at a 30 November oral arguments Uh, oral argument in the American Hospital Association case challenging a payment cut for drugs purchased in the 340B program. The cut was initiated under President Trump to reduce out-of-pocket cost sharing, and AHA challenged it, arguing HHS doesn't have the authority to unilaterally change the payment formula. Some of the arguments involved the so-called Chevron doctrine, a precedent that courts should defer to federal agencies' interpretation of statutes, and I know interpreting decisions based on oral arguments is difficult, if not impossible. But what do you all think we should take away from this case?
1: You know, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, Mike McCann did some good coverage of the case for the pink sheet. And I mean, his you're right that, you know, you always have to be careful reading the tea leaves from oral arguments. But um, his coverage didn't seem, didn't leave me too much doubt that the court seems likely to rule in favor of the hospitals and that most, almost all of the justices seem to think that HHS was kind of misinterpreting or going beyond their authority here and sort of how they use the Medicare statute to to tinker with 340B. The um interesting, the really interesting question, which would open this up to be a much broader issue than just sort of a, a 340B um, drug payment issue is that, you know, some of the very conservative justices seemed, uh, Mike highlighted, seemed to be interested in using this case to kind of potentially like blow up um, Chevron doctrine or, Mm -hmm. which is basically this idea that if they're sort of ambiguous or kind of unclear, you know, legislative text from Congress that a lot of deference goes to the federal agency in charge with um, implementing those, um, that law and the rules and regulations related to it. And I, I think if, um, if there was any major change to that sort of authority for various government agencies, I mean, that would have Huge impacts, you know, in HHS and FDA and beyond. So, so that may be the key thing to watch as this um, opinion gets decided. Um, obviously, you know, 340B has and um, sort of tensions around reimbursement and how much, you know, profit hospitals maybe sort of be making on these drugs and what they're doing with the money has been a big issue. Um, for pharma over the years. um, They have some other legal cases in the pipeline. I I, I think like this one is maybe not as important to them financially as some of the other 340B cases coming on. But um, so I'm not sure if they would perceive this as a huge loss if you know the hospitals win here. But um, yeah, any big change to Chevron deference um, that results because of this case would seem quite stunning. And it was funny because, you know, Mike's article talks about how AHA is saying they don't think you need, they basically said like, we don't think you need to tinker with that to give us a win here. Um, So it clearly seems like there's an opening. And I think some of the justices agreed to like do a narrow (laughs) decision here. And then there, you know, there were other questions when they were asked, well, but if we had to mess up with Chevron to give you a win, should we do it? And they were like, well, yeah, we want to win. So, <laughs> <laughs> be interesting to see what happens.
2: The uh, um, the other sort of side of that uh, um, coin that sort of uh, um, you know it might be sort of good for uh, um, uh, pharma to sort of limit the uh, government's uh, discretion in uh, pricing power is that sort of, kind of if uh, um, FDA has less discretion, that sort of might uh, complicate their lives in uh, um In some ways, we've already seen that uh, um, recently uh, this year with this whole question of of kind of, uh, you know, uh, should uh, um, pods be designated as a device or a drug and sort of kind of, you know, uh, um, FDA had sort of wanted to kind of of kind of uh, decide uh, um, on its own and now they really can't uh, in uh, um, in that sense, that are kind of depending on your circumstances. Circumstances of the sponsor, the these are good or bad in terms of sort of, kind of how uh, how it's played out for various uh, um, products. But sort of kind of it's not just a, an unalloyed good for uh, for pharma to have a uh, um, a more constrained uh, um, FDA. So if there is some big change to uh, to Chevron, it could uh, um, you know change uh, um, that dynamic between uh, both. Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, payers and for uh, um, and for uh, sponsors uh, um, in a way that um, could uh, really sort of upend uh, the uh, um, the uh, the interactions that the agency has with uh, with sponsors. And one of the things that uh, um you know I, I sort of speculated about uh, um, a while ago uh, um, when uh, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away is that if there really sort of is a uh, libertarian push on the uh, on the court, it doesn't seem like they're that that's kind of quite where they're. Uh, they're going right now, but uh, you could see a circumstance in which, uh, um, through kind of FDA uh, um, approval authority, is going sort of kind to of undermine to an extent that sort of it doesn't really sort of, kind of uh, function as sort of the gatekeeper it does uh, um, it does now, and uh, that would really sort of kind of uh, um, change uh, uh, farmers' business model. They would have to sort of, kind of not uh, so much rely on getting things through FDA, but convincing payers that sort of, kind of their uh, their products are worth the uh, um, the premium prices that they're uh, they're paying for them.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting, an interesting thought, and you know, I, you you know, you, you keep I keep thinking in my mind that they, you know, that, that nobody wants to completely upset the the apple card here, and and you know, I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's just me not liking change very much. I don't know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, we started the uh, the podcast talking about how uh, uh, Janet Woodcock was unafraid to uh, to shake things up, and now we're uh, ending with the. Uh, Supreme Court perhaps uh, being uh, similarly bold. So uh, um, I guess that's the theme of uh, today's uh, today's chat.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. If you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheep Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.